You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written... It's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, uh, I have with me Stephen Gremion, and Stephen is a landscape architect. Uh, he is the owner and founder of Palustrous Design Studio uh, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and <clears throat> we get to have a, a cool conversation, uh, kind of per usual, uh, and really talk about you know Stephen's path uh, that led him to where he's at uh, was starting his own business uh, back in in 2020. Um, you know how he ended up um, becoming a landscape architect. Um, he had obviously went to school for architecture, um, but you know didn't necessarily think that he was gonna 
uh, land in the position that he is in now with um, you know being his his own boss and having his own firm and uh, more specifically working uh, with landscape uh, as opposed to just kind of your your typical um, structural things houses buildings uh, whatnot uh, you know we also get to talk about uh, the the importance uh, that conservation plays uh, not only in his life but in his business and what uh, Stephen is trying to do with using native materials there in Louisiana um, in his designs and his build, uh, his builds with things and really trying to um, make things as as original, uh, I guess, uh, is, is what you would say, uh, as possible, um, as native as possible. Uh, and, you know, that kind of ties into the whole conservation thing as well. Um, you know, Stephen, uh, as far as the outdoors uh, and hunting, uh, the hunting aspect, you know, he, you know, didn't get into it until later in life, uh, but quickly saw the importance of, of giving back and making sure that uh, we have access to a lot of these public lands and public places. Um, so that's certainly become a big point uh, for him when it comes to giving back. Um yeah, it just it just turned out to be a really fun conversation, um, and I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. So, episode ninety six, Stephen Gremion. Uh, before that, I'll tell you about our friends uh, over at Wild Rivers Coffee. Uh, Sammy and Marshall are roasting their coffee in small batches so that they can ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers Coffee is also a proud partner with Two Percent for Conservation, and they believe. And preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why with everything that they sell, portions of the proceeds are being donated back to conservation groups, uh, organizations that are near and dear to them. So you're going to get orgs like RMEF, uh, BHA, Ducks Unlimited, and Trout Unlimited. Uh, so head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. Grab some fresh roasted beans, some super cool handmade mugs that they have. Uh, some cool swag, ton of accessories for uh, brewing and your own coffee, pour over, all that good stuff. Uh, and if you use the promo code, this is all caps fish underscore wildlife, you're going to save 15% off your order. Or if you subscribe now, you're going to save 10% off your coffee as well. So head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. All right, with me today, I have the owner and principal of 2% Certified Palustrous Design Studio, Stephen Gremion. Stephen, how are you? Doing good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Uh, we, we got to chat a few minutes, obviously, before we started recording here. And yeah, I'm glad that I asked about the pronunciation of your last name. Uh, because like we said, man, I would have I would have butchered it and then you would have had to correct me and then we would have had to start over. And I probably still would have screwed it up two more times just because, you know, I, I, I read, uh, you know, notes and stuff that I take prior to recording and if I say it enough in my head, I just have this really hard time of overcoming what I've been telling myself for the past, you know, 24, 48 hours as I prepare for this. So I, I did good, right? I got it right? Yeah, yeah, you did great. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you, even your mispronunciation earlier is uh, better than what I get normally. So, you know, congrats. I just, yeah, <laughs> thank you. I just try to sound stuff out. Uh, but believe me, I've, I've had to, like I just mentioned, uh, stop restart recording everything because i've just sometimes i get it sometimes i don't let's just put it that way well i'll tell you you, you did better we had a teacher come in from ball state indiana to uh, ul when i was in school there 
And his first semester at UL, they put him in a class with an Arsenault, a Boudreaux, a Thibodeau, a Delahousse, a Quibodeau, Grimillon, and he had to figure that stuff out. And uh, you did way better than he did, so good job. Well, well, being in Baton Rouge, like eh, I, I don't know why I just didn't put two and two together right off the bat and know that there was that it was going to be a French name. Just you know, like I I think when well, I always think about like whenever I watch like LSU football or something, right? And you know the yeah. Go Tigers and stuff like that, and everything's got an X in it and the pronunciation and all that. And I just I just spaced, man. Oh, it's yeah. Monday. I spaced. What can I do? Oh, you're you're fine, dude. It's 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 uh, again like you're doing better than like 99 percent of the population that calls me randomly and goes, Mister Gr Grum Grum. Yeah, <laughs> Steven. We'll just go and with just, Steven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our licensing board for landscape architecture is based out of uh, like Fairfax area or Baltimore area. Okay, and. Uh, when I have to call them for any kind of clarification or any kind of like feedback on anything. And I get this poor, you know, intern who's a college student and she's just looking at my name going, Oh, Mr. Grimillion. Like, yeah, no, (laughs) but that'll work. Yeah. We'll run with it. Um, no, this is like, from a timing standpoint, this works out really well. Um, you were just announced last week, uh, as being 2% certified. Mm -hmm. Um, so I reached out to you as, as quickly as I, as I could. Um, and I'm glad that we're able to <clears throat> get this on the books for today because, um, you know, <laughs> landscape architecture, um, is something that I know very little about, but it's also, it's all around us, right? When, you know, whether you're yeah. at a building, your, your own home, whatever the case is, um, it's all around us. And I think a lot of times we just, we don't even think about it. We just, uh, it's just something we take for granted, right? Like, you know, there's landscaping at this home or at that home or at this business or whatever, and maybe don't necessarily take the time to think about, you know, what goes into that or what types of companies are actually designing that. Um, so no, I, I'm certainly uh, excited to hear more about the company. Well, it's, it's that I would say that is a, a pretty common thing. Uh, a lot of people, when I tell them what I do, they, they go like, wait, so you tell people where to plant trees? Like, well, Yes and no. It's a little bigger than that. It's a little bit smaller than that at the same time. Like there's, it's also one of those fields when you say you don't know anything about it. I, I tend to find myself looking around going, well, I know less today than I did yesterday. So, <laughs> you know, I, so like I have, I have some friends in the industry that, you know, we, there's three of us that work together that are really close that, uh, kind of came up together at, uh, a firm up in Alexandria. And we, uh, all three of us use predominantly native landscape materials. We try to use like endemic materials as far as hardscape goes. And we're like, we realized that, you know, one, we're the outliers here. Um, the idea of using native landscape in a, or native landscaping materials in a suburban environment, it's definitely different. It makes you think about the landscape a little bit more. Um, cause you know, down here, I don't know what, what it's like up in Michigan, but down here it's crepe myrtles, azaleas, uh, hawthorn and camellias. And, uh, it's kind of the native Southern landscape and our only native tree people use are live oaks. And, uh, they use them to the point that they're, uh, I don't actually use them in design. Cause I know when I get to somebody's house, no matter what I'm doing, I'm going to tear out a bunch of stuff and end up leaving the live oak that they have because everybody has a damn live oak in their yard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't plant them. I mean, they're in my palette. They're in my, you know, in my specs and in my stuff like that. But I, I end up never using them because I mean, shit, I've got, I've got a client five blocks from me that has a 90 year old live oak in their backyard. 
and it shades out the whole backyard. So we have to figure out how to work around it. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a really fun field. Um, so give you a little background. I actually have a degree in architecture and, uh, I graduated in 09 during the height of the, uh, 08 to 10 housing bubble. Right. And you know, you know how that goes, right? Like if the economy's in the tank, the first thing people stop doing is spending money on yeah. things like lands, like new house renovations or, you know, capital improvements for institutional and commercial just kind of stop. So I, uh, the, I left architecture school and found a job where I could and ended up in Alexandria. And, uh, I ended up kind of sidestepped in the landscape accidentally. And, um, you know, fast forward 15 years and here I am. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's always interesting to me how people kind of land, uh, in their chosen line of work or their profession. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some people who, you know, know at a very young age, uh, or even, you know, by the time they get out of high school and they get into college, they know what they want to do, uh, whether that path is Mm -hmm. maybe kind of chosen for them through a family business, uh, or something along those lines, people usually have a, a pretty good idea. I mean, I know when I graduated high school, I wanted to be a physical therapist. I had broken my ankle when I was like 13 years old playing sports. Mm -hmm. And just like the whole rehab process was super interesting to me. I really enjoyed it. You know, uh, working with my my physical therapist at the time, like just all the stuff that that I learned at at a young age. I was like, man, this is super cool, Uh, you know post high school and into my adult life, it'll still keep me involved with, um, with sports and with athletics and things like that. So that's what I mm-hmm. want to do. And then of course I, I get later in high school, I get to college, um, and I'm trying to figure out what I want to declare as my major. And I start to see all the work that goes into it. And I'm like, yeah, no, this isn't for me. Nope. no, nope, I'm not spending another, like, you know, I'm not spending like six years in college to, to do this. Like, I don't care how cool I thought it was back then. Like, let's just, uh, let's pick something a little bit easier. And I landed on business, right? And then business obviously is, yeah, yeah. Night, it's a 180. It's a complete, I mean, there's so many different things you can do with a business degree, right? And where you land. And, you know, I bounced around yeah, yeah. different positions and then ended up in like automotive manufacturing, which was uh, another mm-hmm. complete turn from what I was doing. Uh, and then three years ago, started my own, you know, apparel company. Uh, which I guess there obviously yeah. is some business there, but you know, I'm not like a graphic designer, uh, or anything like that. So it's, uh, it's always interesting to see, uh, or to hear about people's past that lead them to where they're at. Yeah. You played college football for a little while, right? I did. Yeah. Or some, some permutation thereof. I heard that in a previous podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, w- I, uh, I don't have quite the, uh, 180 turn um you know what what we talked about when i was in architecture school is that design is universal like the ideas behind design are pretty universal and straightforward you know make something pleasing to the eye uh satisfy the client or the client's needs or the the brief for the project and do it in an interesting poetic or you know beautiful way and moving into landscape I learned kind of quickly that it's the same tools. You're just using different materials. So like, you know, with architecture, you know, a lot, there's a lot of overlap because you're building pergolas and outdoor kitchens and, you know, hardscape like uh, sidewalks and patios and porches, but you're also 
designing using plants, which are living entities that have a mind of their own, annoyingly enough. <laughs> you know, a brick, if you take a brick and you put a brick in the same wall, like the same type of finish, the same type of everything, right? You do it the same way 6,000 times on a house or hundreds of thousands of times on a big building. It's going to do the same thing every time. Plants don't. <laughs> and it's, it's infuriating and it's, it, it's kind of like it, it provides just that little bit of uncertainty and interest that I find totally missing from architecture. Like there's these, these moments where something works in a way that you wouldn't have expected because that plant has a different character or develops a different character over time or that tree develops a different personality than your usual tree of that type. And it becomes something magic or something beautiful. And there's, there's something about that that was so much more, I don't know, interesting, compelling about landscape that, you know, it's less predictable and it's more, uh, it takes time and it takes a little bit more. I find, uh, patience, you know? Yeah. Like I have some, I have a couple built, built projects. I'm not taking pictures of for another two or three years. You know, architecture is one of those things that the nanosecond you take a scaffolding down, you take pictures of it because it's never going to look better. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's house looks better 25 years down the road. It's like, you know, the soffits uh, rotting out, the fascia starting to degrade, the fences starting to come apart, you know. Well, yeah, and it's it's interesting, too, because with landscape architecture, you're like you said, you're working with, you know, raw materials, uh, but then you're also working with like living plants and and things of that nature and you have to be it seems to me so much more well versed and uh, in terms of having an understanding of of all these different elements that that are going into the process but at the same time you know having a degree in architecture right feel free Mm -hmm. to correct me if i'm wrong here but you're working with kind of numbers and and absolutes and geometry and things like that when (laughs) trying to construct these things and then it's almost like Again, going back to like the whole 180 thing, you know, you start throwing, you know, living plants uh, and, and things like that into the mix and it just gets turned on its head because you know what you think it should do based on, you know, maybe previous uh, experiences. <laughs> and then it does the complete opposite. And yeah. you're like, well, shit, now what am I going to do? Right. Like this is not what I thought it was going to yeah. do. So let's let's just hope the owner or the business or whomever is, uh, you know, is, is doing the uh, is you know, the customer is, is okay with it and can appreciate, um, the differences and the beauty that, that comes with that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I was learning a little bit more, like when I was in my, you know, mid twenties and I was, you know, 10 years ago, I was doing this for, and I was helping friends with their yards and just, you know, doing, they'd have, you know, I have a couple friends that say, well, I have a tree in my yard and it's shading out this and I can't get grass to grow. What should I do? And I use those times to experiment a little bit and play a little bit. And there's a few plants that I really, really, really love. Like I unquestioningly adore, but I cannot use in Baton Rouge because we have really clay, poorly drained soil. And I kept trying different ways to get them to work. And unfortunately for my friends and their, you know, $20 at a time for a plant, it didn't exactly work out. <laughs> And, you know, the the other fun part about it is that, like, if something does go wrong, like uh, one of my clients, we 
we installed the landscaping in like September. So it's a little, it's the wrong time of year to put them in, but it's how it fit. It's, it's just how it worked out with the scheduling. Um, <clears throat> uh, we lost a, we not lost, but like some plants got really stressed out. And when trees and plants get stressed out, they look dead. And, you know, one of the things I've learned is if you let them overwinter, a lot of times some things will come back with surprising vigor in a place where maybe they're not perfectly suited, but they'll figure it out. And uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, I'll go to a nurseryman that's a good friend of mine and pick up some stuff and come back and put it in their yard for them at my cost. You know, that's that's kind of how I've learned to work. It's... uh, you know, it keeps me honest and it keeps them happy. And at the end of the day, a happy client is more important than, you know, having an extra hundred dollars for that. I'd probably spend on bourbon or, uh, another piece of first light gear or some ammunition. So, you know, <laughs> I will say though, the, the ladder that you mentioned there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with spending some money on those things. I'm not, I mean, I'm not one to, I'm not one to judge, but I've spent more than my fair share of, uh, extra income on, those exact same things that you just mentioned. Yeah. Oh, I have too. And that's, that's the, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting place to be. You know, I, I, I never thought if you'd asked me 10 years ago, if I'd be running my own business at this age and kind of doing my own thing. And it's, it's kind of freeing in a way, but it's also just like, it's a little nerve wracking to be sitting there some days and going like, Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. It absolutely you know, making is. Making your money on, on your own, uh, on your own brain power rather than, you know, having somebody sitting above you whose name's on the door, you know? Yeah. So what was it that made you decide to start your own firm? Um, uh, so, I mean, some of it is just the timing was right. Um, I was working in design build at the time and, uh, just kind of getting frustrated with, the realities of design build, which, you know, the focus is more on, you know, run and gun, get it done, get it out. It's got to work every time. You can't play. We have to do, you know, you can't really experiment with materials because if it doesn't work, then you're kind of, the company is having to come out and redo it. And it's, it's so focused on, uh, like let's say on Monday you meet the people by Friday, you need to have an estimate to them and getting ready to get going kind of thing where, you know, I tend to prefer to think a little bit on stuff and try to analyze what's going on. And, and, you know, with the pandemic, it was like, well, I can work from home for somebody else and wake up at five in the morning, every morning and drive out to go do sales calls and work 70 hours a week and still be frustrated or I can work for myself and work probably the same amount and probably make a little less, but be much less stressed out. And, uh, my wife very wisely said, well, why don't you just start taking on stuff and see what happens? And very quickly found out that, Oh yeah, this is a pain in the ass, but it's really not any harder than working for somebody else. Yeah. So yeah, and the I fell into I mean <laughs> I fell into some work too that kind of helped. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and sometimes the, the timing. Right. And the stress is it's the stress is different, right? When Yeah. when you're putting the stress on yourself um just because it's 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 your name 
uh, that's associated with the with the company. It, you know, you're the one that's. I mean, you're you're it, right? For as far as like the interaction, I'm you know, I'm sure you probably contract out some of the actual labor part of it and whatnot. But you know, the the designs, uh, all the meetings, like everything falls on your shoulders, and that's that's a different kind of stress than trying to like meet deadlines and you know close deals and just you know, almost only focused on the throughput, right? Uh, when you're working for someone else and you can take a step back, do things at your own pace, make sure they're done the right way. Take the extra two or three days to gather the information to, you know, just yeah. make sure that all your eyes are are dotted, your T's are crossed, all that stuff and feel much more comfortable um, in the process. And then I'd imagine that in your position now, I mean, you're seeing things through from beginning to end where maybe with a design and build firm, like, you're you're closing the business, but maybe then it gets passed off to like a project manager or or something along those lines. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, and and I I do just to be completely transparent. I mean, I just do design. Um, I will go and do work for very specific people, like little tiny things if they need to be done. Um, but it's not something I try to establish as a pattern. Um, simply because if I were to do design and build for myself you end up spending more time on stuff like laying sod and rolling sod, which is like the least, um, and I hate to sound pretentious, but it's like the least poetic part of the project, right? Like you're, <laughs> you spend a day tossing sod on the ground and then rolling it. And then you're just like, okay, well I spent a day on that. And I, you know, there's no way I could charge somebody what I charge for design work, what I charge for building work. So it's kind of an economic reality that, it makes more sense for me to just say, okay, I can do the design work and I'll oversee construction work on a periodic basis. You know, I, I basically, in my agreements, I have uh, a few milestones that I show up, check in, look at what's going on and send a report to the owner and the contractor and kind of tell them what's up. And, uh, it's, so, it's how I've worked in the past and it works really well. What types of projects but, are you kind of specializing in uh, with the, the, uh, like I know uh, landscape, but like, are you, are you just doing more like residential, commercial, what types of stuff? I typically, you know, I'm probably 95% residential. Um, I have a streetscape job and a uh, development in town and I have a, you know, a lead or two on a couple commercial jobs, but it's usually, I prefer to work on residential because of the one-on-one -on -one client interaction. Um, you know, my, in my past, I've done work for institutions and municipal and commercial work. And what I find by and large is the emphasis in those projects is not really on the executed design as much as it is the executed design fitting into the budget and making the executives look good. And while that, you know, they are very, usually very, you know, decent about saying like, well, thanks guys, you did a great job, whatever. The impetus and focus is not on design. It's on a bottom line and checking things off a list and moving on to the next. And, you know, I, I think for me, there's something really, really satisfying about meeting with a client, talking through a project, putting a design together that they like or don't like in the first iteration, and then finding out how we create something that, that they're going to enjoy for however long they're in the house. And that's, there's something really, really cool about meeting with a client a couple of years after the project. And they're just like, they're thrilled that this is done this way. They love that, you know, they can use their yard in a more meaningful way. They can entertain in a more functional way or they can, whatever it is that they're, uh, 
the goal was at the beginning of the project, we can, we can discuss whether or not it works for them and the budget becomes, you know, it's still a thing. Don't get me wrong, but I find by and large residential clients are more likely to spend a little bit more to do a higher quality project and to get something distinctive and interesting where a business they're really not out there to show how cool they are or how interesting they are, unless it's a very specific business with their landscaping and architecture, I should say. I mean, here it's 90% of the businesses are in, you know, strip malls or office towers. There's very little in between. So the landscaping around those things by and large is pretty pedestrian. It's, you know, exactly what you see everywhere else. So all that to say, I prefer residential and I, uh, that's mostly what I do. Now, how many of these res- <clears throat> excuse me, residential customers are, let's say, like first-time home buyers, uh, whether they're building their own home or, you know, they buy their first starter home and, you know, or I guess it'd probably be more like, you know, people kind of get into what they would consider like their forever home, right? Like a young couple has a kid, you know, they, they've kind of outgrown maybe their, their first home that's, you know, just small enough or that they could just afford they're more financially mm-hmm. stable. They're, you know, further along in their careers and they want to, you know, buy that, that next big home. Are, are you seeing, is it a lot more of that or people who have maybe been in a home for 10 years and they just want something different? I'd say it's 95% people moving into their forever home and they're usually in their forties, fifties, sixties, and they're looking to stop doing the moving around thing and they're just saying, okay, I want to be here and I want it to be mine. Yeah. And that's, those are the projects that are really fun. I mean, doing, I, I'll do the occasional foundation planting for a house. Um, it's, you know, that's the kind of thing where the, the fee is usually not there. Like there's not enough fee to substantiate the project. So, you know, we, in my line of work, we, we charge based on percentage of construction costs. And landscaping percentage of construction cost, if you're doing foundation planting, you might have $5,000 in work, which for, you know, an average first time home buyer is a chunk of change. But for guys like me, if you work at a 10% of construction cost rate, that's only 500 bucks. And that doesn't keep the lights on for very long, considering the amount of work I have to put in to do those. So yeah, it's it's mostly going to be older people with disposable income who want something distinct and interesting. Yeah. Now, how long? Like, so, let's say from the the time you you first meet with with a with a customer, you you discuss you know what they're looking for, uh, you know maybe make recommendations based on you know your experience, you know what their their landscape uh, kind of lends itself to, I guess, um, at mm-hmm. the given time. You know, what does it look like from from that initial meeting to the time that, let's say, you have um, like a, a, a plan and a design fully ready to go that that everyone's happy with. Yeah. Assuming you know there's not, you know, uh, an ex- an, or, uh, an abundance of changes <laughs> or a bunch of back and forth that you have to do, like your your standard, I guess, um, you know, design work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, that's a hard one to answer because it's, it's such a client-specific thing. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about my last three and just going like, okay, those couldn't be any more different, all right? <laughs> so it's, it's, gonna, it's very, very client-dependent. Um, but so ideal situation is uh, so typically I will get a project and, you know, have like an hour chat with the client uh, on site 
and kind of observe the conditions. Here, it's typically trying to figure out solar orientation and where it's blisteringly hot and figuring out how to plant in the places that are really, really hot and uh, the places that are in shade. And then, you know, it's a, so an hour there and then come back, start drawing, and it's probably a day or two of design work and then present them a what I would call a master plan typically. Um, and I'll make a pretty rendering. Uh, if you've been on my Instagram, you've seen a couple of those pretty renderings. Yep. And talk to them and say, okay, this is what we have. This is how the space works. This is, you know, hour and a half, two hour meeting, depending on the client to kind of go over this master plan and think about, you know, ways we need to adjust it based on um, how they foresee using their yard differently than how I foresaw it. And then you have a week or so of back and forth on that stuff. Uh, and we start construction documents on whatever they agree is their most pressing area of interest. And so I do with what I call like a master plan and then phased implementation because no beautiful landscape you've ever seen. And I don't, I mean, none of them you get on like any of these big time companies, websites, and you look at their stuff, very, very few of those are done in one shot where they're just top to bottom doing the whole yard, you know, this whole estate garden. It's phased implement implementation is typically the way to go. And uh, so over the next few years, we just slowly pick away at their yard and take a big chunk, do it the way they want it. And it allows, you know, some adjustments and wiggle in the long term. So you're looking at anywhere from a one to shoot. There's a project in Alexandria. I think we were on 15 years. Oh, wow. A continual, like it's, it's, it's all up to the client. Um, I mean, this house is a national award-winning project. It's, it's kind of like a signature project for that office, but it took, they basically took a couple hundred acres of cotton field and turned it into a stunning, what looks like an antebellum garden. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absurd. I mean, we went out in, in the best possible way. I mean, we went out there for our company retreat and just was, that was kind of the, the light switch moment. It's like, Oh, you can transform an entire place with some very big, but very simple moves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I certainly subscribe to kind of that thought process with, uh, less is more. Um, if you, you know, simple things done right, uh, to me, uh, kind of have a bigger impact mm -hmm. than a lot of, um, like big gaudy, um, type things or, and I don't mean that in any yeah. disrespect yeah. to to people that design that way. It's just it's just not my cup of tea. You know, I would I would much rather yeah have something you know simple. Like for example, um, my wife and I we uh, we the home that we live in now we we built um, God, just over four years ago now. And when it came time to do the landscaping, you know I, I I've just I've seen enough to know what I like and I like you know, a lot of greens in the front yard and just, you know, a few small pops of color, um, you know, placed yeah. in the, in the right areas. And that's, that's what I like. Um, you know, I just, I don't want 17 different types of flowers that are, you know, 12 different, you know, colors. And it's just, you can't really uh -huh. see what's, there's no like flow to it. Right. Like, it's just like, bam, kind of, it's like a Jackson Pollock painting, right? Like while he's, you know, obviously very <laughs> renowned, like he has a very specific style oh, yeah, of yeah. the way, yeah, of the way he, he painted. And that's just, that's not what I want the front of my house to look like or, or the, the, so the landscaping in the back. So 
yeah, there's a guy named Pete uh, Pete Udolf who is a I want to say Dutch uh, landscape architect, and I love his work, but um, I can't do it. It's just it's these it's very grassy and it's all native plants, and he he individually places pots. So like he'll go out there when they're planting and go and individually set each plant where it's going to go, and it makes this you know Monet collage in the long term of like color and texture and it's masterful but it's a lot like it's not the kind of thing you look at and you're like oh this is restful (laughs) it's your eye continues to move to new things because there's always a new pop of color coming in and i tend to fixate on like kind of uh so my mentor like the guy who taught me uh what i know in this in a lot of ways um he had the word simplify in a on a plaque in the conference room where we would have like design charrettes these these quick design meetings with the office and it was just on the wall and somebody would start like over designing something and he just point to it and go (laughs) simplify dude one thing done really well is so much more interesting than doing 50 things half-assed yeah and so um one of the one of the really stunning things i saw him do was to to do that ad absurdum, you know, like, like, you know, 500 palmettos in a field and you'd look at it in the plan and you go, Oh my God, that is going to be monotonous. And you get out there and you see what's going on in the place it is and go, you know, that kind of works. Yeah. And the simplicity of it lets, lets your eye rest between, uh, you know, these really detailed focused areas and it gives your, your brain that like calm, and, you know, he used to joke and I, me and my wife joke about it because I married a landscape architect, too. So, you oh, know, I don't get go. any respite. So, <laughs> um, so, like, we went to a garden walk and it was like we joked that the difference between a master gardener and no offense to master gardeners and landscape architects yards or that a master gardener's yard is, ooh, pretty plant. And they put it in the ground. Now, they put it in the ground in the right conditions, the right place, the right, you know, but there's not a sense of unified design. And, you know, one of my very good friends loves camellias and she has dozen had at one point a dozen varieties of camellia and she wanted to put them together in like a, a C and say like, Oh, this is the, this one, this is the, that one. I said, really the best thing you can do is to place one of those camellias in a place of prominence, show it against some evergreen, nothing, that no one's going to pay attention to and create a palate cleanser between that and the next one. You know, it's, it's, if you go eat at a James Beard restaurant or a five, a three-star restaurant or some stuff, some nonsense like that. Right. And I love that kind of food, but if you eat a five Wagyu and then you eat sockeye, like wild caught sockeye salmon or some like super sumptuous thing after super sumptuous thing, you, you lose it. Like after a while, you're just like, I can't keep doing this. Like we need something clean, simple and stupid to just kind of. Yeah. And Reset. the same thing in, works in. Yeah. The same thing in design. I mean, if every room in a house is done to the nines, where do you sleep? <laughs> like, where do you find calm? Where do you find peace? And so. I, despite my talkative nature, I'm an introvert and I tend to design things that are more 
I guess you would say kind of restful and simple because, you know, there's some chaos, but I also think that, you know, most of the time I'm doing these houses, they're, they're spending, you know, half a million to a, I did, we did one in Texas. I don't know how much he spent. I don't want to know. Um, <laughs> and these houses are always like, you know, you know how that works. The sharks smell blood in the water. So the interior design, the architect, the, and by the time the inside of the house is done, you don't want this landscape that is like, Ooh, a this and a that, and a this and that. You want something that gives your eye a place to just rest. Yeah. And so if that becomes a landscape, that's, that's such a powerful move for landscape to be. It's just a place to, have respite and have quiet. And uh, if I can do that with some native materials that create ecosystem services for pollinators and birds and insects and uh, squirrels and, you know, you name it, that's even better. So, yeah. Yeah, which is, that's actually the, <clears throat> speaking about all the, the, I guess the, the wildlife uh, that kind of goes along with it, that's like this perfect uh, transition. So how does conservation tie into everything that you're doing at PDS? So I kind of talked about this briefly in my 2% bio, but I, it wouldn't, I, my company wouldn't be named what it is without public land and public land advocacy and, you know, what conservation does uh, and allows us to do. Um, so the longleaf pine, I'll go on a slight digression. Uh, longleaf pine was extirpated from about 95% of its native range in the housing boom of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And it makes excellent building material. It's a straight trunked tree that has really dense grain pattern. There's not a whole lot of, like, they don't branch a whole lot. So they're really, really, really good construction lumber. Well, when they were building millions of houses in the 40s and 50s, they just denuded the southeast of those. And um, the Forest Service has slowly been restoring small portions of that ecosystem. And Kasachi was right by the office I worked at, and we would watch controlled burns. And when I watched controlled burns, it made me want to go out there and see it. So having access to these places where I could experience that magical landscape, I mean, it is truly exceptional. I would never have learned this tree and I never would have gained the passion for native landscape to the same degree I have now. So that's a big part of it. And then, you know, the selfish part is I'm, I'm a enthusiastic, but borderline inept hunter and fisherman. I consider myself at <laughs> well, least. Welcome to the club. Yeah. Plenty yeah, of room yeah, for you, my yeah, man. I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and my take on that, you know, maybe, maybe it's Catholic guilt. Maybe it's, whatever is that if I'm going to use a resource and if I'm going to take from a place, I need to find a way of giving back to it. And, um, you know, I know that's transactional, but so is buying a hunting license. So, right. you know, um, and I think the best thing we can do as outdoorsmen is be advocates for conservation. Um, I grew up watching guys, you know, private land hunt around here because that's just the reality of it but instead of talking about deer herd and um herd health and you know qdma kind of issues and they were just talking about well i got an eight point this year and i'm hoping to get a 10 next year and i was like you know and then they just they kill the deer they take the head off of it go get that taxidermy take the rest of the deer throw it in the back of the truck maybe get it clean the next day 
uh, get it processed and ground in its sausage and burger, and that's it. And they don't really relish the process. It's all about the product. Yeah. And when I discovered, you know, a little bit more of the responsible hunting and fishing from my godfather and some of his friends and also seeing the other side of it from everyone else. I was like, well, I'd like to do something to be a little more vocal for the, what I see as the good in the, in the uh, community. Cause there's a lot of bad, you know, there's a lot of bad faith actors out there and there's a lot of, you know, like the, the there's an Instagram account, the hunting douche, stuff you know it's these guys that they're out there and you know they're they're extremely expensive camo at social events and they're all they talk about is how much of a badass they are for doing this that and the other and i kind of think there should be a a little bit of a reset on that and uh a lot of those guys i found didn't give back and didn't you know they'd go out to where we are it's uh the marsh they go out to the marsh they'd focus on limiting out as fast as possible on specs catching their two reds and then getting back to the, the camp so they can get hammered and go do it again in the morning um, instead of enjoying the, the place and the experience, you know? Yeah, no, that's that's very well put. And <clears throat> that's something, well, I've never uh, kind of partaken in, in hunting in that regard. Um, the, 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 the previous uh, way that you mentioned it there, mm-hmm. there, there certainly is a social aspect, um, to, to hunting. And I think that's, I look at that more as like deer camp or, um, yeah. you know, what, wh- whatever, you know, duck camp, whatever the camp is, whatever the, yeah. the species yeah. is, right. The, the camaraderie that comes along with it, not the, you know, getting hammered and, you know, making kind of fools of yourself, um, when you're in the field or, you know, being too hungover to, to get up the next morning and things like that. I mean, <laughs> right. I yeah. mean, there's, it's uh it, it it's like you said it, it's the process right it it's the journey not the destination and i think yeah. that yeah a lot of people um don't necessarily uh, especially you know ones that don't hunt um, specifically they don't understand that right and maybe that's just because you know things like social media and instagram have kind of glorified the grip and grin and believe me i i love taking a picture yeah. um <clears throat> to kind of uh remember um you know the, the, the harvest the animal. yeah right the, the animal but yeah. when i sit down and I, i'm telling you know friends or or family or someone about the deer um mm-hmm. you know the last thing you tell them is oh yeah it was a 10 point or it was an eight point right it's you know what the what yeah. the the day was like that morning or what the weather was like you know how the deer came in what it was doing in the field or in the hardwood and you know you you, yeah. you relive all of these super intense moments at the time and if you've never experienced it it's hard to really grasp it as someone that's listening to it um but yeah those are certainly the the things that i i love about it as well is it's the journey it's all the things leading up to it the the stand placement the you know, trimming out shooting lanes, mm-hmm. um, you know, just trying to understand the, t- the topography of where you're hunting to see how these, these deer are moving and things like that. And it's, uh, well, I, I certainly think there's a I'll lot of, is, Oh, go ahead. What I'll tell you is learn your native landscape. Um, so the, the first doe I shot, the first deer I killed with a bow was a doe and I killed her under a persimmon tree because I knew as a landscape architect that, well, this thing produces fruit at, during deer season so if i'm going to set up somewhere it's going to be oaks 
or, and then I saw persimmon tree and went, Oh, that's candy. Okay. I'm just going to go sit under that. Yeah. So, you know, learning that kind of stuff, you know, like I, I tell guys, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, a white Oak from a red Oak, but do you know the different kinds of white Oak? Because they all produce different sized acorns. They all produce acorns with different protein content, different sugar content. Um, some are more tannic, so less delectable to the animals. Some are more, you know, this. We have down here what's called beauty berry. I'm not sure if they make it all the way up to Michigan. but uh, If they do, they I'm not familiar, purple, yeah. They make these strings of, it looks like a purple corn cob, and it's berries. And they're like, it's about a foot and, let's see, 16 inches long or 14 inches long, and it's a stalk of just berries. And deer go nuts for that because they have a high sugar and reasonable protein content. Um, I mean, to that point, I, I cleaned a raccoon for a buddy of mine three weeks ago, and its belly was full of beauty berries. So knowing your native landscape is going to help you kind of make that process even more interesting. Um, and to that point, I prefer Western hunting to box blind hunting for whitetail here. Um, you know, I, I went out to Wyoming a couple of years ago and just was like, oh, this is because it is so process oriented. It is so like hike out, find the place e-scout <laughs> glass <laughs> a make a stock start over yeah yeah it's you're right it's very yeah. it's very processed and kind of nuanced uh ordeal but i mean that's that's the way it's done right when you're especially when you're on those big yeah. you know big landscape like that and not you know if you're you know because when you when you whitetail hunt whether from a tree stand or a box blind i mean if you're hunting a field edge yeah maybe your line of sight is a couple hundred yards depending on the size of the field but for the most part, you're, mm-hmm. you know, 75 yards and in, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe not even in all directions, right? But, I mean, right, that's right. that's your area. But when you get out west, I mean, you're, you know, you know, with a good set of glass, I mean, you know, you get up on a knob and you're, you know, you can see for a long, long ways away. And then you make your point. Yeah, I watched an, I watched an antelope that busted us from about 900 yards run for another two miles. That's <laughs> just yeah yeah it, it, <laughs> which is you know when a, when a whitetail busts you and runs 50 yards into some tree lines and you still hear him it's kind of like man that's that's a little embarrassing but when a, a antelope is you can just watch her keep running and running and running <laughs> it just adds to that little bit of like shame and humiliation it's like oh. yeah it goes back to the ineptitude that we talked about right <laughs> yeah, yeah oh precisely i mean there's no way that antelope should have seen me in my mind. And then I look back on that now and go like, well, dumbass, you creeped up, you slid over the top of a ridge instead of finding your way around the military crest. And you just kind of skyline yourself and then wondered why they all went, what the hell was that? Yeah. I'm not sticking around to find no. out. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it and I got into Western hunting after getting into backpacking. So like there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, it, it combines two of my favorite activities. So, um, it's been, it's been a really fun journey. Um, me and a friend are planning a, uh, an elk hunt and, uh, in Col- an over the counter elk hunt in Colorado. And, uh, me and my wife are going to go scout the area this summer and, uh, hang around in the mountains with our dog and see what's out there. Yeah, no, that sounds like sounds like a great trip. So, with uh, how was it that you learned about two percent? I I don't quite remember. It was one of those things that it popped up somewhere, 
in like a recommended, you know, X, Y, Z. Like I was on, I think I was on like either seek outside or first lights page back when first light still had the 2% thing on their, uh, yeah. information. I was like, well, what in the hell is this? And looked at it and went, Oh, this seems interesting. And I was working at the time, I think in, I think I was working in, I was in Louisiana at the time and it just seemed like something that was really interesting. And I knew the place I was working was not going to be interested in giving any of their time or money. And so I just, uh, I was like, well, when I do something, maybe I'll, I'll pursue this. And then, you know, because I'm ADHD as hell, I promptly forgot and rediscovered it again and then promptly forgot and rediscovered it again and promptly forgot. So it's one of those things that I've, probably thought about and forgotten 50 times. And then, uh, when I started my own business and I got my business BHA membership, I was like, Oh yeah, I should probably do this. And, uh, here we are. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that sounds fairly, um, familiar or similar, I guess, to, uh, to a lot of other companies, right? They see it and for whatever reason, the timing just isn't right to kind of act upon it. Um, or you're just, you know, uh, uh, a smaller company is just kind of getting going. They know it's something that um, they want to be a part of. Um, and then like, like any new business, right. Especially if it's, you know, kind of a one man show, um, you know, there's a million All other things. Yeah. There's a million other things on the plate and it just, it kind of falls by the wayside. Um, but what I also find is that once people, um, you know, make the decision to become certified uh, what I hear a lot of is, oh, it was a no-brainer, right? Like once you you take the, you take the time to to do your due diligence and understand what two percent is and what they stand for and and what the requirements are and everything like that, they're like, oh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm probably already doing this anyway, right? It's more of just a formality at that point. That's what my wife said. She goes, you're you're already, you know, we had already been giving to the American Prairie Reserve and backcountry hunters and anglers, and uh, I had just started. Uh, giving to Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. And she was like, well, you're already giving time. Like the time is not the problem because she works for BREC, uh, our Parks and Recreation Department, and they have a fantastic conservation group that's really keyed into like uh, preservation of native landscape, preservation of their parks from invasive species. They're doing a lot of work with – what we call Cajun prairie. So like the short grass prairie that used to be in certain areas of Louisiana. Um, they're trying to restore some of that in parks as an educational uh, piece of their work. And so I was already helping out. I had just gotten certified to help them. So it was like, well, you know what? I'm already going to be spending 20 hours a year just working with Breck. I spend probably 20 to 40 with BHA. So why not just, you know, use that to be something that I'm, lobbying for things that I love. So here we are. Yeah. You kind of touched on it there, but what are some of the organizations that you're giving back to or that you're working with? I mean, as I said, BHA has been a big one. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers was the first real conservation group I ever joined. Um, They kind of, in a way, what they're getting after is what I tend to be excited about. Um, Public land, public access, and uh, to that point, it's kind of changed how I approach conservation in Louisiana. You know, our, our big two in Louisiana are CCA and Ducks Unlimited, but they have both come down on the side of the landowners in the fight over the marsh. So I 
pulled out of membership with those and started giving to Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, which I think does similar things to BHA and uh, is more, I guess, grand in focus. Uh, and then the American Prairie Reserve, I think, is something truly unique that people should be a little bit more aware of. Uh, you know, creating around the Missouri breaks a bigger extension of that land to provide more habitat for migration, more habitat for preservation, and more access to hunters and fishermen. So I'm really happy to work with them. Uh, this year is the first year I'm working with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and the Wild Turkey Federation simply because if I'm going to shoot one or two, I probably need to start giving back some way, shape, or form. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, has turkey season kicked off for you guys down there yet? April 1st, oh. and I was at a wedding this weekend and a birthday party for my godson and his sister this weekend, so I was in Baton Rouge and not sitting in the in the turkey woods but last year i got one turkey hunt in and watched a gobbler from 100 yards poke his head up and disappear into the woods and then come back poke his head up and disappear in the woods and at that point i just got really upset and figure i need to probably chase these things a little more seriously (laughs) (laughs) you know before i went it was kind of like the first time i went hunting i always thought it was kind of this i mean how much fun can it be I mean, you're sitting there waiting for stuff to happen. It's like, oh, this is a chess game. This is yeah, a yeah. really interesting chess game. So here we are. Um, it's funny you kind ahead. of preface it like that because, you know, like how much fun can this be? Yesterday, my wife and I were talking. It was, I mean, spring here in Michigan is, especially this year so far, has been very up and down. I mean, I'm looking out the window right now and it's like 35 degrees and like a wintry mix. Right. And it's just, you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to be outside right now. It's just, it's not fun. And yesterday was, I've been, go ahead. I've been throwing the ball to my dog since we started this conversation. It's like 70, maybe 65 and clear and blue skies in Baton Rouge right now. Yeah. We're going to end this conversation right now. If you keep talking like that. No, I can yeah. I can hear the birds chirping and I can hear the dog panting every now and again. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, is this guy like, have an open aired office given you know what he does, or is he just like on the porch in a rocking chair, just like chumming it up, right? Like, what is what exactly is he got going on right now? I so I am uh, I'm very restless on the phone, so I tend to pace. So uh, I get my ten thousand steps during phone calls um, during the day. So I'm just pacing in the backyard, wandering around, throwing the ball to the dog. I, you know, I think that's a male thing, um, just like the restlessness of being on the phone. Because, I mean, for, for this particular instance, like I have to be in, you know, at my desk in front of my microphone. But if I'm on the phone with anyone else, I'm pacing around the house. Like I've seen these videos of like wives who will like give their husbands a broom right when they're on the phone because they're just like walking around the house anyway, right? You might as well do something while you're at yeah. it. And yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. I don't know what it is, uh, if it's like a nervousness and anxiousness or like you said, a restlessness or what, but yeah, I have a very hard time just sitting still when I'm talking to someone. It almost feels unnatural to just stay in one spot when on the phone. Well, on that weather topic, one of my favorite conversations about, uh, one of my favorite stories about the whole like difference in climate in the U S I interviewed for a job in Bozeman, Montana about 10 years ago. And 
it was in February and the interview, it was via Skype and I'm talking to the guy and I realized at some point that like the windows and the, the, in his office, it was like a basement office, you know, downtown Bozeman, like the, the main streets at one level and like the next street is like 20 feet down. Right. So his office faced main street and he had these like clear story windows and it was just white. I was like, well, wait, hold on. What, what's the day like today over there? And he said, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's like minus 22. And I went, huh. He goes, what's the weather like where you are? I'm like, it's uh, 88 and raining. <laughs> it's just like, why, why would you want to go there? I mean, aside from, you know, what the West has to offer, why would you want to be in minus 22 degree weather? Well, um, I spent the first 17 years of my life trying to leave Louisiana. Finally did at 27. And, uh, and here I am back. Um, I mean, Louisiana is one of those states that everybody who lives here wants to leave because when you grow up here, um, all you see is what's wrong with it. If you know what I mean? Oh yeah. I guess that's everybody. But, uh, you know, it's, it's got some institutional and like big, 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 I guess you'd say fundamental issues in the state. And when I was young, it was about trying to get away from it. Now it's, you know, trying to help. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a big, a big shift uh, in a person when they want to become part of the solution as opposed to just running away from the problem. I mean, you know, I grew up in Michigan, um, and like I mentioned, uh, I think before we started recording, a pretty rural area. Yeah. And you know, growing up and, and being in a, a small town, small community, like there was, I just I wanted to get away, right? Like I wanted to experience like mm-hmm. uh, a big city or something like that. And, you know, after yeah. I graduated college, I, I lived in Chicago for a year and uh, it took me about six months to realize that, nope, the big city is not for me. Uh, like the whole allure and everything wore off super quick. Um, you know, all yeah. the things that I liked to do uh, as far as like recreating, uh, hunting, you know, I love to go skiing in the winter. Like I couldn't do those things as easily uh, as I could when I was in Michigan and then, you know, once I get older and then I have kids and I start to think back on my upbringing and it's like, man, I wish, uh, you know, I could, you know, raise my kids in that same environment where, you know, there's just there's woods and there's lakes and there's streams and there's all these things that we can do outdoors instead of, you know, having to worry about, you know, the house next door, or the kids next door or something like that. Uh, or, you know, there's just all these other worries that come with living in, you know, obviously a much higher uh, populated area. And yeah, I, I find that a lot of times as you get older and more mature, you kind of want to get back to your roots and, and, you know, especially if you, you had a, a pleasant upbringing, which, you know, I, in hindsight, I absolutely did regardless of what I thought when I was a kid and, and how strict my parents may have been. I mean, that was a, a great way to be raised and, and to grow up. I mean, I mentioned I went to an all boys Catholic school, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you get an idea of about what my, uh, upbringing was um i mean we so i mean baton rouge i will say that private schools are a lot cheaper than elsewhere but um an all boys catholic school will will definitely make you very anti-establishment for a little while um (laughs) you kind of get like i have lived with arbitrary rules for four straight years well 13 straight years and i just want anything else and so i went to art architecture school was a very big disconnect from that as well so it was, you know, getting away from that and then having the maturity to come back and go like, wait, 
this is actually a really interesting place. And one of the reasons that Louisiana and Baton Rouge in particular has kind of suffered, I would say, in the cultural realm is that no one's really embraced the place of Baton Rouge or like the placeness that we have here, like the, the uniqueness of what we have. And uh, every place has something. So, you know, what I try to do is celebrate that instead of, you know, we get 70 inches of rain a year and nothing drains here. So let's lean into that, steer into the skid, make your yard hold a little more water, plant around it and plan around it. Yeah. And that's makes, makes life easier. And I, you know, I have to struggle a little bit to educate my clients on some of that, like responsible water management, responsible, uh, landscape management. But which is different from places like Nashville where I worked where people just kind of, they were a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more in tune with that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I mean, obviously I like to talk. So <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great way to look at it and a great way to, to approach things. Um, I mean, not just in, in where you're going to live and, you know, raise a family and things like that, but just in life in general, right? Just always have an open mind, lean into, you know, what, you know, whatever area you're in has to offer and, and make the best of it, right? There's no point in, in yeah. being miserable. If you're going to live somewhere or do something, you might as well make the best of it. And if, you know, in the end you decide it's just not for you, well then make a change, but don't, don't fight it, you know, yeah. without giving it a chance. Well, I mean, I will say like to that point, I have shifted from being a whitetail. Like when I lived in Nashville, I was chasing whitetail a lot because they were readily available easy to get to. I mean, Cheatham wildlife management area was 45 minutes from my apartment and TVA land was like 30 minutes from my apartment. So I could paddle out to some TVA land and bow hunt on TVA land, or I could drive out to Cheatham uh, early in the morning, go hunt, have a nice day outside and then come home and have a full day. But here it's more about fishing because we really don't have the acreage of good habitat close by so what i do a lot of is you know go play around on little pocket ponds with a fly rod trying to catch panfish and it's a uh, it's a fun little thing and then if i really want to get into it i can take a hour and 30 minute drive to the uh to east new orleans and drop a kayak in the marsh and go fishing there yeah no, that's uh, that's the beauty of the United States, especially, is uh, the diversity of landscape oh. uh, and outdoor um, pursuits that are are available to us. Is you know every every region <clears throat> is going to have something a bit more specific to it, and you just have to find it right. There's there's so many opportunities out yeah. there. You just have to to put in a little bit of work ahead of time, find out what there is, and and just go after it. I mean, if you could if you could get in your truck and drive, you know, an hour and a half and go catch redfish, I, I'm sure you'd take advantage of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Louisiana is kind of that, like uh, the, the inshore fishing down here is kind of, uh, here in Galveston, you know, Venice, Louisiana and Galveston, Texas are talked about the kind of, and the, I guess you would say there's some other estuaries that get a similar level of attention, but it's kind of the Mecca for, those guys that want to go catch big reds on a fly rod. So whether that's good or bad, it is. Yeah, it is what it is. We've got a, we've got a, we've got a great fishery that periodically gets impacted by some, you know, bad actors in the Gulf and, you know, 
we deal with it as as it comes. Yeah. So, Stephen, before I let you get out of here and uh, get back to mm-hmm. throwing the the ball around with the dog, there, what um, you kind of touched on it with the outcome. But do you have any other big uh, like hunts or trips or anything like that planned for this year that you're looking forward to? I've got a backpacking trip, and I was going to try to do a little uh, a little like blue line stream fishing up in North Alabama, um, but you know, gas prices being what they are and a Tacoma drinking gas the way it is. I'm not going to be able to do that, but we're going, uh, me and a buddy are going backpacking on a, uh, big piece of Kasachi in a couple weeks, uh, going to Colorado, go scout for elk. And then probably got a Turkey hunt coming up soon. I know I've got a fishing trip coming up in May. So, you know, just trying to catch the seasons and catch the right stuff. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Um, a lot of different, uh, you know, nothing, Nothing huge, but a lot of like little, you know, again, when you're, you're close enough to certain things, you don't have to be so, uh, long range, but then these elk and antelope hunts, I tend to take a couple of years to e-scout and plan for. Yeah. Yeah. You want to, when you're yeah driving that far or flying and spending the money on tags, yeah, you want to make sure that, uh, you're doing, uh, all the necessary work <laughs> and being as prepared as possible for something like that. Yeah. Usually, I mean, winter is usually... Um, I'll go and spend a couple of days at my godfather's lease. He's kind of the, the guy who took me under his wing to teach me how to hunt and, uh, fish and stuff like that. So he'll take me up to his camp in Mississippi, but that's kind of a, you know, catch as catch can kind of thing. I can't beg to go. It's not my land and it's not my lease. I'm just, uh, you know, helping him thin the herd a little bit. Yeah. Um, so all that to say, I have very little plan, but I usually end up getting in the mix here and there. Yeah, no, that's great. And where can people find PDS that, uh, you know, want to just learn more or, you know, if they're in the area, potentially uh, inquire about your services? Um, easiest way to get in touch with me is uh, email. Uh, but you can find my website. It's palustrousdesign.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram at palustrousdesign. And they can find me on Instagram if they want to try to spell my last name at sbrimion. Um <laughs> that's really the easiest way to get in touch with me and see what I'm up to. Um, I'm not very good at social media. Uh, my wife tends to laugh at my, you know, once a fiscal quarter Instagram post, but, uh, you know, that's an easy way to find me and all of my information is there. They can find my email address and phone number. Um, I'm licensed in the state of Louisiana for landscape architecture and, uh, be happy to help out anybody in the state. Awesome. Well, Stephen, thank you a ton for for making some time this morning. Uh, I certainly enjoyed, no yeah, hearing more about your journey. You know what it is that you do and the difference that you're making for conservation down there in Louisiana. I uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem, man. Um, it was nice chatting with you. It was uh, a lot less nerve wracking than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, no, you did you did what? fine, man. It was uh, it was great. It was enjoyable, <laughs> and we'll we'll have to do this again as uh, as time goes by here a little bit. Anytime, um, you know. If you ever want, if you're ever curious about what's going on down in the the muddy, swampy, you know, armpit of the world, just come on by. <laughs> and if you're ever down here, just give me. You know how to get in touch with me? Just give me a call if you're ever down here. Yeah, absolutely, we'll do. All right, Stephen, we'll enjoy your day, I'll man. Treat- Take care of yourself. Yeah, man, I'll uh, I'll treat you to some uh, home cooked Cajun food. Absolutely, I can't turn that down. <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk All to right. you soon. All right, take care. Later. 
All right. Well, thank you again to Stephen for joining me today. Uh, I would also I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Wild Rivers Coffee, Stone Glacier, and Go Hunt, as well as Two Percent for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org, and check out all the brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media, where it's going to be only positive, conservation-driven content in your feeds. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, be sure to check out theaverageconservationist.com. Grab some cool swag to support conservation and stay up to date with all of the latest podcast episodes as well. So until next week, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you. <laughs>